I want to thank Pastor Tyler for sharing the word and filling the pulpit last week. Uh, and today I have the opportunity to finally finish us off in chapter 10. We've been in chapter 10 for a little bit now. And so this sermon is going to sort of tie the bow on the last five weeks of preaching, basically. This is where Paul's argument has been heading since chapter 8. Eight. So um, uh, there might be some things that we make reference to, and uh, you can go ahead and find those sermons on the website at your own time. But you should be there by now. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 10, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market uh, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers who invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone does say to you, this has has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why would my liberty be determined? Uh, oh, I lost my spot. Sorry. Uh, informed you for the sake of conscience. Uh, why would my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of, of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. Amen. In this passage, Paul wants to help us and the Corinthians to wisely navigate through the gray areas of life, particularly in their context in meat that is sacrificed to idols. Now, as I said, that probably sounds a little bit familiar to you because Paul is finishing off his argument that he started back in chapter 8. And the sermon that was preached on that chapter is the right use of rights. How do we use the rights, the liberties that God gives us when we are saved through Christ? And I said to you in that sermon that Paul was going to be starting an argument that wouldn't be completed until a chapter 11, verse 1. And that's where we are today. So if you missed those ever other messages, you can listen to the podcast version or on our website, the video version, and you can catch up if you need to. So Paul makes his way back to food sacrifice to idols. And it's important for you to remember that Paul is not addressing this issue of our liberties and eating or drinking or any of these things on the access of what an individual should or shouldn't do. He's not saying you should or shouldn't do. What he's doing is he's addressing the issue based on what's best for my neighbor and what will bring most glory to God. You see, the key area to the gray and controversial areas in our life is the law of love. How am I loving those around me in this action? As followers of Jesus, we're not just to ask the simple question of is something lawful or not. We have to ask also, is what I'm doing loving. Plenty of things the Bible doesn't prohibit, but they're not beneficial either. And Paul's idea of bringing glory to God 
happens through loving our neighbor with an an outside focus in our minds. And so we're going to explore this by looking at three sections today. I broke it up in three points, so you know it's a good sermon when it's three points. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, three Gs. I didn't even know I did that. So the glory of God, the good of neighbor, and the grace of a glorious God. So we're going to start by looking at verse 1, which is the glory of God. What does it mean for me and you as individuals and corporately as a church to glorify God? And we're going to start with verse 31 because verse 31 is actually the foundation verse of all of Paul's arguments since chapter 8, which is whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God, be it eating or drinking, whatever you do is all to the glory of God. And this idea of uh, bringing glory to God or glorifying God it can be a little bit confusing at times because it, we, we, we tend to use this term a lot as Christians, but we rarely reflect on what we're saying. And in some sense, it's hard to properly use this term because there's no place in culture where this word is properly being used. Typically, we use glory in a negative sense, right? That film glorifies violence, or that is a glorified uh, uh, sense of self-importance that you have, or it's used in a self-directed way, right? No guts, no glory, or those were the glory days back in the day. Those were the glory days. But glory is properly defined as public praise, honor, and fame. Now, we're talking about bringing glory. Now, when you talk about the glory of God, you're going to study more of the uh, idea of weight. It's heavy. The glory of God is heavy. But we're talking about how we bring glory to God. So it's public praise, honor, and fame. To glorify something is to glorify it, is to bring public praise and honor and fame to that thing. To glorify something is to make it bright, to, to shine it up bright and, and shine it brightly, kind of like my house on November 24th. Christmas lights pop out of nowhere and it shines in the darkness for all to see. That is the idea of bringing glory to God. We're shining light. We're making it bright in the midst of all the darkness. And Paul suggests that Christians are to live all of their life, every part of their lives, starting with the most ordinary and mundane things like eating and drinking. And we're to do these things in such a way that it brings publicly praise, honor, and fame to the name of God. Because God is indeed weighty and glorious in his being. And he is the only one who deserves all glory honor, and praise. Paul tells us that all of our desires should intentionally be aimed at making God gloriously known for who he is. Our daily activities, as simple and ordinary as they may be, should be aimed to bring glory to God. I've talked about this a lot through this last year, about this idea of uh, a personal revival in the mundaneness of your life. You can bring glory to God when you wash the dishes. I know it's a horrible task, but you can find God in that. I quoted Brother Andrew to you about that, where he intentionally tried to bring glory to God in every area, and he said it was almost impossible, but it was the most rewarding exercise he ever did. You can be spiritually renewed in the mundaneness of your life. Are you bored? Find glory. 
Glorify God in all you do. But however, people often, and I'm first in line here, we make the mistake of confining our glory-aimed activity to just devotion in public worship, corporate worship. Evangelicals have often made the mistake of compartmentalizing their lives, of this is my life, this is my work life, this is my home life, and this is my spiritual life. You can't separate your Christianity from your vocation. You can't separate your Christianity from your home life. If you do, you're not understanding what it means to be a Christian. Everything is to bring glory and honor to our God. We have neglected so often the glory-aimed potential of the ordinary. I want that to be a common phrase. The glory-aimed potential of the ordinary. Because we have focused almost exclusively on just matters of religion and expletive praise. And in doing so... We, as a Protestant church, we've sometimes downplayed the importance and the significance and the potential for all life to be glorious, all life to have sacred space. At the same time, you know, don't hear me wrong, God does want your public praise and corporate praise, your public piety, your public worship, your spiritual disciplines, all the rest, but he wants more than that as well. If you're a great man or woman here on Sunday, but you're horrible behind closed doors in your home, you're sinning. You're sinning. And I might not see it. The elders might not see it. But your wife does. Your husband does. Your children do. And what it's screaming to you is you're a fake. We need the glory of God to infiltrate every area of our life. We need to see the clear connection of faith and work, God and science, faith and justice, etc., etc. They're not to meant to be di divided. They're meant to be together. It's important to understand that giving glory to God is not simply a vertical action between you, the individual, and God, but it's also a horizontal action between you and me, the individual, and our neighbors. And every time I use neighbor, I don't want you to just think the two people that live next to you or across the street from you. You can think of those people, but I'm also talking about your community that you live in. But I do believe that God has placed you in the neighborhood where you live right now for a reason. For a, a predetermined reason for God to use you to bring glory in front of your physical neighbors. Don't waste that opportunity. God's glory is designed to be gained comprehensively through the actions and love of others. If this is indeed the case then, what exactly is the nature of the relationship between our doing good to our neighbors, our community, and us giving glory to God? Well, that brings us to point number two, which is the good of neighbor. How does being good to my neighbor glorify God? Can't I just hate them? It's so much easier. I just want to close my blinds when I see them come home. Whoa! <laughs> Let's get out of here. The call is to think about the choices and decisions we make in light of what is good for our neighbors. In the context of discussing the matter of food sacrificed to idols, if you remember, Paul has been making this argument over the last few weeks of what are the far-reaching implications of whatever I'm wanting to do even if it's in bounds of my Christian liberty, what are the far-reaching implications for my neighbor? How does this weigh on them? I know, as North Americans, we don't think like this easily. It's hard. 
And this, this highlights something that we all struggle with in this individual, I can't speak today, you know, this individual culture, I'll say it that way. And that's this, I, this, 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 this struggle to love our neighbors. Look at verses 23 to 26. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Notice the quotes, because he's quoting, remember, common usage that the, that the Corinthians were saying, oh, I can do this, all things are lawful. But not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what Paul is doing is he's identifying two groups within the Corinthian church. He's addressing two groups. One of them can be categorized as the carefree ones, the licentious ones, the nonchalant ones. The, everything is under Christian liberty ones. I, don't, I didn't know how to categorize these people, so you're getting seven different definitions. But everything is under Christian freedom for them. And so Paul addresses them. He, as he's quoting them, he goes, you guys are running around saying all things are lawful, right? But not everything builds up. So are they really lawful? And so they're using their theological truth of the liberty of the gospel as a license to do whatever and anything that they want to do without little regard to those around them. I was active for many years in street ministry in Chatham, where I come from, and I had to call my friend out because he was in a strip club claiming that, oh, he, that's how he's going to reach people. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can, you can justify anything under the banner of Christian freedom, but you shouldn't. Not all things build up. And then, Paul, and then Paul goes to the legalist, the second category of people, and Paul addresses them in verses 25 and 26, eat whatever is sold in a meat market. Right? He said, or, or, and he's going to go on and say, when you're invited into a home, don't raise questions about what is on the plate. Right? Because they did not fully understand the liberty that they had in the gospel. This is the opposite issue. And then they were having these private convictions of what they shouldn't do. And they were trying to impose that upon everyone around them. And they were opposing rules that weren't explicitly laid out in Scripture. But it was something that they felt they shouldn't do. And that's okay. If you feel you shouldn't do something, don't do it. Don't violate your conscience. But that doesn't mean you can extend things that are not explicitly stated in Scripture onto those around you. Because that becomes legalism. And so Paul answers their error by quoting Psalm 24, 1, which is a mealtime prayer that was often invoked at times of, uh, uh, of dinner in, 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 in the ancient Israel. He says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Meaning God owns everything. Eat whatever you want. It's all his. And in today's church, we have both these types of people. Even within our little church, we have both these kinds of people. We have publicly legalistic people who sometimes and oftentimes are privately licentious. And we have publicly disciplined folks who are privately hedonistic. It just happens. And the word to both of us, wherever we find ourselves in those groups, is the same. Paul says, let no one seek his own good but the good of the neighbor. The legalists thought their own good and ignored the way that their approach bound the conscience of their neighbor. The carefree ones, the licentious ones, they sought their own good and ignored the way that their approach scandalized the conscience of their neighbors. 
And the word to both is the same. Stop seeking your own good. Stop putting your needs, your wants above everybody else's. Seek the good of your neighbor. Therefore, you will, by doing so, you will bring glory to God. The legalist was attempting to glorify God without loving his neighbor. Verse 27, it says, if one, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Unless it's tofu. Raise all those. Man, man. What's wrong with some people? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> in other view, uh, so in this view, loving your neighbor, it's unnecessary, but it does make a nice accessory. So in private, I don't care about loving my neighbor. But when I'm in the public's eye of the church, oh yeah, it's a nice little watch I can wear that brings my whole outfit together. <laughs> loving my neighbor is not necessary, but it is an accessory that I like to flash around to others. And in this view, God doesn't get the glory because it's refracted. This approach would, is robbing God of his glory by ignoring his desire or choosing a desire for self-directed spirituality over God's desires. It's a city like, in a city like Corinth, the chances are sizable that most all the meat that you are going to consume, in, or at least a large majority, has been offered in sacrifice to pagan deity. And so for Corinthian Christians to, know, to never eat meat altogether again, it, it would be either they have to avoid it altogether, or they would have a pedantic and probably unrealistic expectation to put inquiry into the origins of every meal they're going to eat. They must be millennials who check on where their coffee comes from all the time. <laughs> Sorry. Meat in Roman Corinth did not come shrink-wrapped in plastic. The packaging on that package didn't stipulate whether the animals in question were free-range, corn-fed, or happy at the time of their death. It didn't tell you any of that. Right? So consider this example. A typical legalist in the Corinthian church is invited into a home of an unbeliever. That non-Christian offers that legalistic Christian some meat, which, remember, at the time was of delicacy. And often in these cultures, he probably gave them all the meat that he had for that month to honor this individual who's in his house. And rather than simply receiving the offer and giving thanks to God, this legalistic Christian hesitates and ultimately refuses the offer. And that's not being a good neighbor. I was always told growing up, yeah, I don't care if you don't like that at someone's house, you're forcing it that down your throat. Yes. Even if you puke it up later. <laughs> Get it down. For this legalistic individual, doing good to a neighbor is, is an accessory. It's not a necessity. And Paul wants to steer you and me away from being privatized moral conformists because all that produces an imperialistic, rigid people. And we've all met people like that. They're just crusty and rude, and you can tell they have never done what the Westminster Catechism tells them to do, which is to know God and enjoy him. They, they erase enjoy, right? They're like, oh, no, we can't enjoy God. We've got to be angry. 
On the other hand, the libertarian, the free will kind of, or free, uh, free going kind of guy, individual, he's attempting to love his neighbor as well without glorifying God. Verses 28 to 29 says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So Paul here is addressing those in the church who are more concerned about their own freedom than the good of their neighbor. And Paul does not negate Christian liberty. He protects it there clearly. You can see it in your text. But he does call the believer to give up their liberty for the sake of his brother. We talked about this a few weeks ago in a sermon called The Ends of Entitlement. What is God calling you that you might have to tone down or give up in order to make the gospel more advantageous through your life and compelling to those around you? This is what he's talking about again. He's bringing it home. The Corinthians were attempting to love their neighbor without directing them towards the ultimate source of love, which is God. God is love. And in this view, loving your neighbor is is, necessary but it's also an end in of itself. It's a means to an end. The self gets the glory because it's reflected back. It's robbing God of his glory by ignoring him and by choosing one's desire for self-generated good works over God's desires. So the libertarian individual may oppose the legalists, right? We see this all the time. The, the free will ones or the free going ones are kind of like, ah, don't cramp my style, man. Stick it to the man. Let's go. And, uh, and, they, and they start fighting each other within the church. We see this actually outside of the church as well in culture. Right, You have the progressive mindset, and we have progressive individuals. I wouldn't really consider them progressive, but we have progressive individuals who think religious people are intolerant. And guess what happens? They end up becoming intolerant to the religious people. And and the particular modern individual may be saying, I can be open-minded to every type of system of thought except for that of religious nature. Modern-day tolerance is self-negating and inconsistent. But we would be fools to say that doesn't happen within the church either. But there's a different way. We don't have to put ourselves in both of these camps. We can go to this third way, and the way that I would argue that we should be, which is the gospel-centered approach. And this gospel-centered approach loves one's neighbor in order to glorify God. The love of neighbor is a means of glorifying God, who first, by the way, loved us. In this view, loving one's neighbor is necessary, but it's not an end in of itself. It has a goal. The end goal, the direction, the finish line, is to direct all praise and honor and glory to God. That's the goal. God gets the glory. He receives it by the means through which he is asked to receive it. And one of those means is by loving your neighbor. We must allow God's desire to shape and direct all of our activities in our life for his glory. And part of bringing glory to God alongside of your devotion and praise, etc., etc., is your love for your neighbor. The problem is that we're not actually all that interested in loving our neighbors, are we? Every time we do, we have this thought, well, what's in it for me? 
When loving our neighbor is about what we do or do not get out of it, we're actually not loving our neighbor, we're using them. We're not ultimately interested in giving glory to God, we end up becoming glory thieves. Even when we can objectively acknowledge that God is the supreme being who is ultimately worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, even though we can say that with our mouths, we're still longing in our hearts like Schmeagel for the ring. I want a little piece of the glory. My precious. My precious. Yeah. <laughs> we want a piece of the pie because our hearts are wicked. In his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this. It's probably a little small, but if you are to ask the modern person what is the highest of all virtue, that person would say unselfishness or selflessness. The ancients of old would not have responded that way. That's how the modern person responds. What is the highest virtue of all virtues? The ancients would have responded not with unselfishness, but they would have responded with the virtue of love. Lewis continues, the negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves as in so far their absence and not their happiness is the important point. We can mix up all sort of things in our mind. We can look at love and and make love what it's not supposed to be. It's all about ourselves and we can do the same thing with our glory to God. How can a Christian individual move beyond their self-centered cycle that we so often fall into? How do we move past the dangers of both pietism and legalism? How do we move past the dangers of activism and licentiousness? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves and so to bring glory and honor to God? Well, the question is, as I begin to close, is in our third point. It's answered in the grace of the glorious God. Verse 32 to 33 says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Again, hear Paul's heart. Why does he do this? So they may be saved. The call for Christians is to have an other-centered, self-giving love on a mission. It is to have more concern for the needs of others in interests of others than my own needs. And this is, not just, this is not just in Corinthians. We see this in Philippians 2 as well. And Christ is our example. And if everyone's truly living on this, you don't have to worry about your needs because if you're in need, guess what? Somebody else is helping you meet those needs. It's also to be self-giving and not seeking our own advantage. Paul is calling upon Corinthian believers and us to open up by allowing ourselves to be disadvantaged for the sake of others. It is love on a mission. Why? So that they may be saved. So that drum heller may be saved. So that your neighbor may be saved. Paul can give this out. Paul can give this call because he himself has lived out this call in his own life. This statement is a purpose, purpose clause. It is through our other-centered, uh, other-centered, self-giving posture that we can be good neighbors because we are concerned about their ultimate good. See, we always just focus on how do we make them comfortable in their physical needs, which is important, don't hear me wrong. But we also, and primarily, need to be focused on their ultimate good, which is their salvation. 
Though this, this need not and cannot be our exclusive aim in the way that we relate to our neighbors, it must be the primary aim. We want to see them saved. We have the hope of glory living within us, and we want to share that. God is glorified when our love for our neighbors leads them to embrace him. Paul offers himself as a model to this kind of love. His ministry is a model how you and I can adapt to all kinds of different settings in order to make the gospel of Christ compelling. But his model is based not on himself. His model is based on the example of one who is even greater than Paul. The only way that you and I can be moved out of our self-interest and self-centeredness and live lives of other-centered, self-giving love on a mission is to see that we are the recipients of God's other-centered, self-giving love on a mission that was displayed to us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, oh, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul also says in 10.24, he says, Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And Jesus, in essence, did not seek his own good, but he sought the good of who? Not even just his neighbor, his enemies. Jesus, the one who was ultimately glorified, in a sense became de-glorified, so that in order that we, his enemies, might be recipients of his love. Jesus was the only person in history who perfectly loved his neighbor and his enemy for the glory of God. He fulfilled the law even while avoiding the trap of legalistic pietism. He never attempted to avoid his neighbors and his glorification of God. He secured and he exercised freedoms even while avoiding the trap of hedonistic activism. He never attempted to use his neighbor to get glory for himself. As Christians, we can love our neighbors for the glory of God because God, because Jesus loved his enemies. He loved us for the glory of God. We can disadvantage ourselves because, because Jesus ultimately disadvantaged himself for us. So how does this change us? How does receiving the other-centered, self-giving love of God on a mission in Jesus change the human heart? Well, firstly, it does this. Our spiritual capital is no longer invested in trying to get God's love because we have it, and we have it in full. But it's in demonstrating the love that we have been given to those around us. We understand that everything between you and I, it, sorry, with you and I between God, has been fully and finally been made right in Jesus. So the Christian... Me and you, we can live our life under the banner that reads, it is finished. Church, it is finished. So we necessarily must turn away from ourselves and turn towards our neighbor because we don't need anything else. Everything has been given to us in Christ. Everything we need, ultimately our salvation. Yeah, you might suffer here. Yes, you might go through hardship here. But that's not eternal. You will be in heaven where Jesus will personally wipe every tear from your eyes and you will be with him in eternity in his kingdom. Amen? You necessarily move away from yourself 
and go to others. Because you are forever freed from our need to pay back God or secure God's love and acceptance because you have it. And so now we are free to love and serve others. We work for others horizontally because God worked for us vertically. The Christian lives from belovedness to loving action. His love for us begets love from us because everything we need, everything we need in Christ, we already possess it. We are now free to do everything we can without needing others to do anything for us. We can now actively spend our lives giving instead of taking, going to the back instead of trying to claw our way to the front, sacrificing myself for others instead of sacrificing others for myself. This sort of truth, it protects us as Christians from being concerned about the verdicts that others place on us. Every day we desire to hear some kind of verdict that declares that we are good or we're competent or that we're worthy. Oh, just tell me I'm worthy. So we walk around daily performing because we know that we're always on trial in the eyes of those around us. Our lives are fixated on other people's responses. And Paul's solution to this insecurity is to know that the trial's over, church. The trial's over. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. It is immensely encouraging to know that because of Christ, that he went to trial for us, that we are no longer on trial. And here, it gets even better. The, you're not even in court. The court's been adjourned. We are free to love our neighbors and to glorify God. Not for any self-gain, but clearly to just serve them and to point them to Jesus. And that's both to your unsaved neighbor and to your Christian neighbor. We need to be reminded constantly within these walls that we need to bring glory and honor to God. We need to be encouraging each other, pushing each other, spurring each other on, be invested in each other, not just say, hey, I can't wait to share the same air with you next week. No, do life together. We are no longer in the courtroom. We are newly motivated lovers because our affections have been stirred by the beautiful picture of Jesus going to trial in our place and giving us all his advantages that he's had. He gave up his rights so that we might utilize our rights not to be secretarian or to abuse or to ignore others, but rather to lovingly serve them and to be disadvantaged for their good. We can live, we, we can now live a life of freedom that, that, that doesn't abuse our liberties, but instead uses them for the glory of God by loving our neighbors. In John 21, Jesus confronts Peter, right? He's betrayed him. He's denied him three times. They're on on the beach. Jesus cooks them a fish breakfast, which is just disgusting, right? Um, I like fish, but not in the morning. And he says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He asks him three times. He's restoring Peter. Peter was broken. And Peter was shattered from his turning away from Christ, but he still loved Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, well, you have to go through 12 steps before you can come back and serve me. No, instead, in the midst of Peter's brokenness, Jesus takes him and charges him with one thing. Feed my sheep. Care for my people. 
What Jesus is trying to do for Peter at that very moment is help him understand that loving God means loving one's neighbor. Likewise, glorifying God means doing good for one's neighbor. And like Peter, you and I, we are broken in our sins. We deny God with actions, with thoughts, and we rob God of his glory every day with our self-centered lives because we're glory thieves. But God tells us that even though we've betrayed him, he reinstates us through Christ. We need to reflect on his radical and restoring love and not just keep it to ourselves, but we need to express that to others. We need to share that to others so that my life, that your life, might be compelling with the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for this argument that Paul has been making for the last few weeks now about how are we to live in light of those around us? How are we to view our rights as Christians? How are we to view our liberties? Yes, we can enjoy them, but also are there things, O Lord, that we are to forego so that my neighbor can come to Christ? that we, as the council of Jerusalem said, that we wouldn't make it hard with our lives to make others who are, uh, hard for those who are turning to God in our lives. Father, use us. Use us, Lord. Use this church. Let us to be outward focused and not inward focused. Help us not to be self-centered, but self-giving. Lord, may we not just share the same error once a week, but Father, may we invest in each other's lives, helping each other meet our needs that we need and being a true example of unity in the love of God. Fathers, we go and reflect upon these things in worship. Would you be kind to us as you apply them to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.